From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Founded in 1810, Circleville, Ohio is a city with a population of about 14,000 people. Situated along the Scioto River, it's just 25 miles south of the state capital of Columbus. The city is named after its original circular layout, which was based on traditional Hopewell Native American earthwork on which it was constructed. Today, Circleville is probably best known for its annual pumpkin festival, held since 1903 and considered the largest festival in the United States dedicated to the most famous of gourds. The annual festival has topped over 400,000 visitors for its four-day free event. For better or worse, Circleville is also famous for yet another reason, the mystery of the Circleville letter writer. Spanning three decades, the anonymous writer penned anywhere between hundreds to potentially thousands of letters from 1976 to 1993. The letters purported to know intimate details about the lives of residents of the small town and made brutal claims that were often later found to be at least partially true. And as time went on, the letters became more threatening and more cruel. To this day, the mystery is still unsolved, depending on who you ask. So who was the mysterious writer? Were all of the letters crafted by the same person or by multiple people? To start at the beginning, we have to go all the way back to 1976, when local school bus driver Mary Gillespie receives a letter from an anonymous sender demanding that she end her affair with local superintendent Gordon Massey. The letter, like the countless others that would follow, was postmarked Columbus, Ohio, and had no return address, when back in the day you didn't have to provide one. The letter read, Ms. Gillespie, stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about meeting him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. So your daughter's turn to pay for what you've done. I shall come out there and put a bullet in that little girl's head. Ignoring the first letter, she then receives a second letter eight days later. It reads, This is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. A pig sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs causes families and homes and marriages to suffer. You are such a pig and I will prove it. Why doesn't he come to your rescue? Or has he too much to lose? His wife in which pigs like you take advantage of? His $28,500 a year job or his kickbacks? How's your little girl? Will she grow up to be like you? After initially keeping the letters to herself, her husband Ron then receives a letter of his own. Mr. Gillespie. Your wife is seeing Gordon Massey. You should catch them together and kill them both. He doesn't deserve to live. The writer even threatens to go public with the affair allegations if Ron doesn't take action. Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. Only pigs ride motorcycles. Good hunting in your red and white truck on your way to work. I followed him for weeks last summer and have seen her meet with him several times. 
It eventually becomes too much for Mary and Ron to handle on their own, and so they confide in Ron's sister Karen and her husband Paul Freshour for help. Initially, they felt that they could keep it all in-house as Mary thought she might have a good idea who was behind the letters. One of Mary's fellow bus drivers, a man named David Longberry, had previously expressed romantic interest in her. Mary had rejected his advances, and David seemed to be resentful, and therefore a prime candidate behind the scathing accusations. But then the letters began to flood into residents of Circleville beyond just the Gillespie family. One such letter ended up in the mailbox of the vice principal of the school. It reads, I shall send you proof about driver number 62917. She has a child in school there now. I shall prove this shortly. I expect him to be discharged. You'll see, I am telling the truth. The author soon began to make good on their threats to make the alleged affair public. It soon began to be impossible to contain as the writer went beyond just sending letters. There were alleged phone calls and signs posted around town, which ends up taking a massive toll on the Gillespies. Ron spends hours before work driving around town, removing signs defaming his wife and family. Eventually, Mary and Ron have no choice but to seek the help of the local sheriff, Dwight Radcliffe. An investigation into the letters is launched, and law enforcement try their best to get to the bottom of just who is behind it all. They tap phones, watch houses, and attempt to work with the Postal Service. It eventually gets to the point where it's so overwhelming that Mary leaves town with her sister-in-law to stay in Florida for a while, while her kids and husband Ron stay behind. And as if this story isn't strange enough, this is where it really starts to go off the rails. On August 19, 1977, while Mary is away in Florida, Ron gets a mysterious phone call. To this day, no one knows who was on the other end of that call. But whoever it was seems to confirm Ron's suspicions. In a rage, Ron grabs his 22 caliber revolver, tells his kids he's going to talk to the person who's been writing the letters, and takes off in his pickup truck. A few hours later, Ron is found dead in his truck, having crashed into a tree. But here's where it gets truly weird. Initially, Sheriff Radcliffe suspects foul play. It's discovered that before Ron's death, he'd fired at least one shot from his gun, although only the casing is discovered, never the bullet. They were never able to locate the bullet or even a bullet hole. So who was Ron shooting at? Sheriff Radcliffe even questions and eliminates a suspect after the suspect allegedly passes a polygraph test. Eventually, he rules Ron's death an accident, citing that he lost control of his vehicle and crashed it while driving drunk. According to Dr. Ray Carroll, who performed Ron's autopsy, Ron had a blood alcohol level of 0.16, twice the legal limit. Friends and family find this shocking. They claim that Ron rarely ever drank and hadn't been drinking that day. Shortly after Ron's death, other residents start to receive letters claiming Sheriff Radcliffe was involved in a cover-up in regards to Ron's death. One such letter read, Please know, letters were before 1979. Writer almost had another innocent man in prison. Ha ha. David Longberry would have if the man in prison now had not tried to trick Writer with Writer's own writing for homebreaker Gillespie. See what he got? Ha ha. He will not get out of prison or Radcliffe will take his place. There was foul play. They are still together. Teenage boys seen what happened. 
You always use high speed for elimination of someone if you must get rid of them. You don't fire shot for drinking. There were many booby traps at the schools, but no one could admit for a public scare. They can now. The signs and letters will not stop. Mary was not a teacher, only a bus driver. Radcliffe does not allow media unless approved by him. There were signs in the Grove City restaurants. The police lied. The letter also corroborates Ron's brother-in-law Paul's claim that the sheriff initially agreed that Ron's death was the result of foul play, before later changing his mind based on the result of the unknown suspect's polygraph. Another twist in the story is after Ron's death, Mary later acknowledges that she has in fact been in a relationship with the superintendent, although she claims it only began after the letter started. In February of 1983, the mystery writer begins placing threatening signs all along Mary's bus route, many accusing Superintendent Massey of sexually assaulting Mary's 12-year-old daughter. Mary, driving an empty bus at the time, pulls over to tear down the sign only to find a small box rigged to the back. She takes it home, only to discover later that the box contains a small pistol designed to go off if the sign is pulled a certain way. And still, the story gets stranger. Whoever created the booby trap attempted to rub the serial number off of the gun, but didn't do a very good job. Lab tests were able to trace the gun back to none other than Paul Freshour, Ron's brother-in-law, the one helping them to find the writer. At the time, Paul is separated from Ron's sister Karen and going through a rather messy divorce. But one question, Paul admits that the gun is his, but that it had been stolen several weeks prior. He just hadn't reported it. So on February 25th, 1983, the sheriff asked Paul to come in and provide a handwriting sample. However, instead of simply collecting a handwriting sample from Paul, he has him attempt to emulate the writings of one of the letters. Not exactly standard practice when it comes to handwriting analysis. Regardless, Paul is arrested and charged with attempted murder. On October 24th, 1983, his trial begins. And according to most experts now the prosecution had at best pretty flimsy evidence to connect him to the booby trap and letters. At the trial, the prosecution brings in a handwriting expert who testifies that she believed Paul to be the author of the letters, which is further enforced when Mary testifies that she believed it to be true after visiting with Paul's wife. Paul's boss also testifies that Paul was off work the day the trap was set. It's also important to note here that Ron's sister Karen... Paul's wife also tells law enforcement that Paul is indeed the writer of the letters. So the prosecution has a handwriting expert tying Paul to the letters, Paul's own wife and Ron's sister, stating that he's the author, Paul being off the day the trap is set, and the fact that Paul works at the Anheuser-Busch Brewery plant in Columbus, Ohio, where the letters are all postmarked. So when the defense get their shot, they show that Paul does actually have an alibi for much of the day in question. Multiple witnesses testify seeing him at home that day as he was having work done on his house. There's no real physical evidence linking Paul to the crime. No fingerprints, nothing, just circumstantial evidence. But in the end, it ends up being enough to convince the jury and Paul receives the maximum sentence of 7 to 24 years. But the letters don't actually stop when Paul goes to prison. And in fact, Paul allegedly receives one himself. It says, now are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of here? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all. No one wants you out. 
No one. The joke is on you. Ha ha. Tell no one of this letter. I saw the paper. Great news. Great. The sheriff loved it. Ha ha. Do you believe it now? Do you? Others in Sturkelville continue to receive letters all postmarked Columbus, Ohio. But Paul is serving his sentence at a prison in Lima, Ohio. The sheriff is convinced that Paul is still behind the letters, but the prison warden disagrees. The warden confirms Paul has been kept in isolation and has no access to pen or paper. Additionally, Paul has also been strip-searched and has all of his incoming and outgoing mail inspected. And yet, hundreds of letters are still finding their way to the residents of Circleville the entire time Paul is in prison. Paul continues to maintain his innocence and claims he has nothing to do with the letters or the trap set up for Mary. By 1990, Paul eventually becomes eligible for parole and is denied on the basis that everyone still believes he's behind the letters, even though it would have been impossible for him to have sent them while in prison. During this time, the letters become increasingly cruel, with one alleging that the prosecutor in Paul's trial murdered a pregnant woman. In May of 1994, Paul is finally released after spending 10 years behind bars for a crime he still maintains he did not commit. After his release, he reaches out to the FBI to help clear his name and includes a 160-page document containing information about townspeople and the case, along with a plea for the FBI to investigate Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe for engaging in a cover-up. But the FBI ignores his request, and so he later publishes this document and his research on his own website. In the years since, the mystery of the Circleville letter writer has been the subject of numerous podcasts and TV shows, including Unsolved Mysteries and 48 Hours, with all manner of experts, researchers, and investigators weighing in on who done it. So let's look at possible suspects. So let's start with the obvious candidate, Paul, who did do the time. It was Paul's gun found in the booby trap. He was also off work the day the trap was set. Also, the box the gun was found in was a common box they used at the Anheuser-Busch plant. The Anheuser-Busch plant was also located in Columbus, where all the letters were postmarked, and you also had his soon-to-be ex-wife stating that she'd found a half-written letter in the toilet, as well as several others hidden around the house. And then, of course, the handwriting expert from the trial, testifying that Paul was the author. And more recently renowned handwriting expert Beverly East has also stated that she believes that the handwriting definitively matches Paul's writing. So what was the motive? Paul had a good-paying job at the Anheuser-Busch plant in Columbus and had a good college education. And how did he come to know all of the lurid details behind Mary and so many of the other townspeople's lives? Those who knew Paul all described him as a kind and good man. And yet the nature of the letters was often cruel and such that the writer seemed to be enjoying causing other people pain. Was there a side to Paul that no one knew? One he managed to keep hidden from even his closest friends and family. But then there is the issue of the hundreds of letters sent while he's in prison, including the one that he also himself received. Did he have an accomplice on the outside sending pre-written letters? There was also the issue during his trial where the defense proved that Paul didn't have the materials necessary to construct the booby trap or the sign. They also never found ammo for the gun. And there's also the fact that Paul went to his grave, declaring his innocence. Paul unfortunately passes away of a heart attack in 2012 and pled his case to the end. 
Is it possible Paul was set up for a crime? We'll come back to that in a bit. The next potential suspect is Mary herself. How did she randomly pick the one sign that happened to be booby-trapped and manage to discover the trap without shooting herself? Also, the death of her husband feels convenient if she's engaged in an affair with another man. However, why would she put herself through such a public dragging that ultimately destroys her image? There's also the issue of the posters with the inflammatory accusations involving her young daughter. So for me, this makes her an unlikely candidate. Next, there's the fellow bus driver who had his romantic advances rejected by Mary, David Longberry. He certainly had motive if he's jealous and jaded and aware of a relationship between her and another school employee. There's also the letter that the vice principal receives that includes Mary's driver number. David would have had access to that sort of information, but we really don't know much about David Longberry other than in 1999, he raped an 11-year-old girl and while on the run from law enforcement, took his own life. So let's move on to another candidate, William Massey, Superintendent Gordon's son. The only real link to him seems to be the idea that he'd obviously have motive as his father was cheating on his mother. And the initial letters were asking Mary to end the affair. Also, some of the letters were signed with a W, which could stand for William. But beyond that, there isn't much else connecting William to the letters. The next candidate on the list is a newer one. In 2006, a former police officer named James Renner, who grew up in Circleville, hearing all about the strange letters, started to look into the case and found some evidence that led him to a former school superintendent named Dwight L. Bowman. Bowman may have had motive, as he'd been fired from his position as superintendent and had a grudge against several of the individuals who ended up receiving letters. Unfortunately, Bowman passed away in 2009, so law enforcement was never able to follow up. So let's circle back to Paul and the theory that he was actually set up for the crime, a theory Paul's own lawyer even brought forward during trial. So therefore, the suspect in question here is Karen, Paul's wife, and Ron's sister. Karen and Paul were the ones initially pulled in to assist Ron and Mary in figuring out who the author of the letters were. Upon the time of Paul's arrest, Karen and Paul were actually going through a rather contentious divorce involving custody of their daughters, which eventually went to Paul. Karen had essentially lost everything and was living in a trailer on Mary's property. If Paul goes away, Karen is the one who stands to gain from the situation. Karen was also the first person to point the finger at Paul as the author. Also, the letters Karen claims to have found, the one in the toilet and the other ones hidden around the house, were never seen by anyone other than Karen. She wasn't able to produce any of them as evidence, claiming she'd thrown them away. If she was so convinced that Paul was the one who actually wrote them and ultimately had attempted to murder her sister-in-law, then why wouldn't she at least hang on to one of them to show law enforcement? Additionally, being married to Paul gave Karen access to his gun. Another piece of evidence that seems to lend credence to this theory is that there was a witness, another bus driver on Mary's route, who claimed she passed the spot where the booby trap sign was found, about 20 minutes prior to Mary coming across it. In that moment, she noticed a man standing beside what looked to be a yellow El Camino. As she gets closer, she sees him turn away from her and pretends he was going to the bathroom, as if trying to hide his identity. 
Although she didn't get a clear view, she did describe him as a large man with sandy hair. The complete opposite of Paul, who was not large and had very dark hair. What's interesting about this description, though, is that at the time, Karen happened to be dating someone who actually does fit this description and did have access to that type of car. Still, it's difficult to truly connect Karen to the booby trap or letter since police never followed up on that piece of evidence. In the years since, the case ended up on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. At the time, Karen declined to be interviewed. Around that same time, Unsolved Mysteries actually received their own letter. It said, Forget Circleville, Ohio. If you come to Ohio, you L. Sickos will pay. Signed, The Circleville Writer. So was the letter a hoax by someone trying to add to the legend, or from the real writer? Paul Freshour did participate in the episode, stating that he desired law enforcement to reopen the case and take another look. Allegedly, it was also reported that Karen was not happy with Paul's involvement, and supposedly was said to have watched the people coming out of their interviews for the episode, even taking pictures. Karen also reportedly declined to be interviewed for another episode of the show 48 Hours. As part of the episode, former FBI profiler Mary Ellen O'Toole took a look at the case. She believes that whoever the author is, quote, they're flying under the radar, coming across as very normal and people would not suspect them, end quote. O'Toole also believes that all of the letters were authored by one single person. As she points out, it's far easier for one person to keep it a secret and ultimately take it to their grave than multiple people. And when analyzing the letters, she also believes that the author goes through great pains to give the impression that they're male throughout statements within the letters such as, quote, I'm the boyfriend of a woman, as if they're trying to get the reader to believe that they are in fact a man. Based on O'Toole's analysis of 98 of the letters, she believes that the person is not highly educated, callous, perhaps suffering from a personality disorder, and would not have risked exposure by setting a booby trap. To this day, the mystery remains. There are certainly a number of things that point to Paul as having been the letter writer, but there are also parts of the story that simply don't make sense. Unfortunately, Paul passed away on June 28, 2012, at the age of 70, still proclaiming his innocence. We may never know if Paul wrote the letters, set the booby trap, or simply wrote the letters and had nothing to do with the trap or had nothing to do with any of it at all. Either way, if it was Paul, then he literally took the secret to his grave. And if it wasn't Paul, then that means that the writer is still out there. Happy Halloween. <laughs>